India's record COVID outbreak, International Workers' Memorial Day, Tasmania heads to the polls, and the good news is about Jaguars. This is The Week on Wednesday. Hello and welcome to The Week on Wednesday. I am Ben Davison, and with me, as always, is the effervescent, effervescent, I should say, (laughs) Van Batam. How are you, Van? Hello, my darling, darling man, who I live with, who knows perfectly well how I am. I know. Well, I have to ask every time. The the listeners need to know how you are. I'm great. I'm awesome. I'm fabulous. I get to look at your sweet face. Well, can I just say, I know this isn't the official good news, but can can I say, can can I drop here? that there is some good news in our household and that is that you finished the first draft of your new book. We're not talking about that. It's no, embargoed. No, we're not talking about it in any details whatsoever but it's good news for me because it means that I have some semblance of a normal life again. <laughs> and I'd like to publicly acknowledge that while I have been working on an unnamed project with no publicly released details, Ben has indeed been doing all the cooking and all the cleaning because we are a modern relationship and we take turns. That's right and I am the Life. All right. <laughs> ben! So there was actually an excellent article um, I read in The Atlantic, which is one of my favourite magazines, that talked about how the secret of cohabitation is um, is sharing the load equally but working out different people's specialisations. Oh, there you go. So you taking responsibility for all the cooking and the cleaning has been great and I'll just, I'll just handle the... Taylorism in the home, eh? The, the holistic work. <laughs> Very good. Well, look, uh, obviously there's a lot going on at the moment and uh, WA, thankfully, is now out of its COVID lockdown. But since then, there has been more bad COVID news coming out of India, Van. Yeah, we really should speak about what's going on in India because this was uh, a worry at the beginning that there would be countries densely populated with various kinds of demographic and geographic factors that would predispose them to mass outbreaks. And this is what has happened in India. India, of course, led by the Modi government, very popular government, uh, but not necessarily as good at the governing as the winning of the votes. And a lot of articles have suggested that really inconsistent uh, health messaging has accompanied the spread of COVID in India, that their systems are not coping, they're not properly resourced. There are issues with corruption in part of, you know, Mm. India's civil infrastructure and they... it's now terrible. Like the the spread has been rapid. It's hit the most marginalised communities, and people are dying in enormous numbers. So early on in the pandemic, people might remember some of the news stories that were coming out of India about how, in fact, in some of the slums in India, there wasn't that bad. It wasn't that bad, and they were dealing with it, and it was all sort of they f- felt like they were on top of it. Now, of course, this wave of COVID that has hit is, as Van said, accelerating rapidly. Um, 352,000 people diagnosed on Monday, the largest single-day record um, COVID diagnoses so far. 115 people every hour in India are being diagnosed. Uh, They're rapidly approaching 200,000 people uh, having died from COVID. So I think there are about 198,500 and something. Uh, And of course, they are now appealing to the international community, Australia among them, um, for supplies of ventilators, oxygen. It seems to be the big thing that they're short of uh, and really any assistance that can be offered. Um, 
some of the experts in the articles I've read uh, suggesting that in fact there's a huge number of undiagnosed um, cases in India as well and in fact there may have been a huge number of undiagnosed cases for some time uh, because of course their health infrastructure there is not as it is in much of the rest of the OECD, much of the rest of, um, I suppose, what you'd call the West, uh, Western countries. Uh, and there are now 8,000 Australians stranded in India because Scott Morrison has announced there will be no more flights from India whatsoever coming in. Well, I mean, Australia has a particular responsibility to India because they are our regional neighbours. Mm. Um, we have traditional relationships with India as another Commonwealth country and we have a very large population of Australians who would identify as Indian Australian. And, you know, they're a major trading partner. We have these very solid relationships with that country. And this morning, uh, Greg Hunt was saying, he's the health minister, by the way, yep. was saying they the Australian government was considering sending oxygen supplies to India. Now, I want everybody to be aware that uh, India was has been manufacturing a vaccine and when things were worse in other parts of the world, India prioritised getting the vaccine they were making to those places that mm. really desperately needed it and were doing the, the global heavy lifting in terms of vaccine supply. Now the situation has reversed and the outbreak is in India and it is tearing through communities. Um, Jamila Rizvi, who's, of course, Australian journalist, has been posting on her Instagram about the, the pictures that we're getting of India, which are horrific, are much better than how it actually is on the ground. And there's absolute terror in communities about a, a lack of medical resourcing and a lack of you know access to hospitals and this oxygen shortage. Articles uh, are coming out saying India is literally gasping for air. Yeah. It is terrifying, and it's the world community, and particularly Australia, has a responsibility to help India out. And I mean, I was reading in Haaretz, one of my <laughs> favourite newspapers, which is of course the Progressive Israeli newspaper, because I just cannot read enough newspapers in a day. Haaretz was talking about what India really need of field hospitals mm. and mobile labs and beds and doctors and medical supplies, yeah. and that that's the opportunity for proactive help is to actually supply field hospitals mm. to India and help take the pressure off the health system because this is what we were all warned about all over the world that health systems would become inundated with patients and collapse and not be able to contain the virus because there would be too many patients mm. coming in and quarantine it has been very difficult to manage there and of course there were some completely insane decisions made like having uh, you know no social distancing and mass festivals and pretending as if life was going on as normal which are pub massive public policy issues but you know that's a, a f the people shouldn't have to pay for a failure of leadership and it's really up to the rest of the world to step up it's it's quite disturbing to see um, I saw some photos of uh, people being cremated on piles of wood on top of car parks in some cities in India because, of course, the, the, the number of deaths are simply overwhelming the facilities available to, to deal with that, to cope with that. Uh, and and when you're at that stage, you're, you're very close to total civil breakdown. I know that India's called out the army, they're... they're doing all the things that I suppose you would want them to do. But as you say, you know, once those public policy decisions have 
got to this point and the negative impacts are beyond kind of the threshold, it really does require a, an international, um, multinational response to help get India back under control. Um, and it doesn't really seem like that's forthcoming. I, I did see that America is uh, reassigning some 60 million vaccine doses. Um, the UK, which of course also has uh, a long and, dare I say, troubled history with India. Well, they um, did, you know, invade and colonise it. And so plunder I think, it, yeah. Yeah, it's, totally <laughs> plunder it of resources, disrupt yeah. social structures, you know. The usual, the the usual, the usual British Empire stuff um, has has pledged some support and aid as well, but you know this is, as you also said, you know India is a major trading partner with Australia. Uh, it's a major source of international students, which of course education until COVID struck was the second largest export industry in this country. Uh, it is. Um, part and parcel of the culture of many of our major towns, major major cities, you would struggle to find many substantial towns in Australia that didn't have an Indian restaurant, that didn't have at least some families that had some connection to India, whether it's through education or cricket or trade um, or some kind of cultural connection. You know, India is is not the sort of distant, far-flung country that... No, it's not America. No. It's it's India, and it's nearby. Yeah, and And if you're in Perth, it's really nearby, right? If you're in WA, India is really not that far away. No, not at all, not really. So, I mean, this is the thing. There's a lot of... um, It's really disturbing just to consider that that the government aren't being more proactive about Mm. mobilising aid to India and they're considering supplies. Like... This gets into a broader conversation about foreign aid Mm. and the fact that, you know, we've had Liberal governments successively cut foreign aid and cut our foreign aid commitment. I I, I get the feeling a lot of Australians who get persuaded with, oh, we're going to cut foreign aid, why are we giving money to foreigners, you know, kind of basically racist arguments, don't seem to understand that foreign aid isn't just about money, it's about logistics Mm. and it's about cooperation and support and supporting civil societies and government initiatives and, you know, and providing channels for, you know, social organisation and improvement. And, I mean, they're fundamental responsibilities because if we've learned anything, I mean, haven't we learned mm, anything? Mm. It's, we we are a globe. Yeah. Like, and... And, and aiding, and, aiding one's neighbours is exactly the sort of thing you need to do. You know, you can't, you can't trade with a country that is collapsing under the weight of a major health crisis. You can't, you, you're not going to get students coming from a country... If they're all dead. If they're all dead, if they're unable, you know, and and part of the reason why trade is important is because it strengthens bonds between countries. And I do, I always get a bit frustrated with uh, the anti the anti-aid um, brigade, if you like, because they say things like, oh, well, we've got homeless people here and, oh, we, we've got our own, um, you know, populations to deal with and we've got our own troubles. And it's like, yes, we do. Yes, we do. But the money that's cut from foreign aid doesn't go into housing the homeless or lifting job seeker No, payments. it usually goes into tax cuts for rich people. And so you go, well, it just sort of goes back into the general mash of government revenue, frankly. And and it's a, it's a nonsense to say, oh, well, we're not going to help India or we're not going to help the Pacific Island nations or we're not going to help, you know, our near neighbours because, you know, some kind of crank idea that if we 
don't give them the money, the money will go to our people. Well, the reality is it doesn't. What actually has to happen is a decision has to be made to help our people here. And we saw that during the pandemic. We did see for those brief moments, and Michelle O'Neill mentioned this in the, her National Press Club speech this week, that for a brief moment in Australian history, we provided every household who needed it free access to childcare. We provided every Australian who needed it a home. You know, we eliminated homelessness. We lifted millions of people out of poverty. And you know what? We didn't cut our aid budget to do it. We just decided to do it. Yeah. You know, and if we want India to be part of the global community, which we obviously do, that's a billion people. A billion people. But it's also, it's understanding the role that aid plays in international security. Like, you know, we, we didn't, the whole concept of foreign aid didn't come out of, you know, benevolence. It came out of, I mean, I'd like it too. I'm a nice person. Mm, You're a nice mm. person. But it comes out of strategic uh, objectives about fostering alliances and building cultural relationships Mm. and enfranchising trade routes and creating opportunities, business, Mm. educational, cultural, all of these things. And in terms of public health care, like as long as there is coronavirus in India, there is a coronavirus threat to the world. Because we also know that the virus rapidly mutates. Mm. That it changes, that it that the dog is making extremely intense noises. Germanicus, come here. What is that? But your point your point is a really good one, Van, right? Because we've seen we've seen that eight thousand Australians now cannot come home. Now Morrison promised these people would be home. Didn't he promise a year ago? Yeah, they'd be home before Christmas. They'd be home before Christmas. Now he, to be fair, he didn't say which Christmas. He just said they'd be home before Christmas. <laughs> a Christmas. So before Christmas as a concept is terminated, they will come home. But on a serious note, we have Australians all around the world, um, and they're not all you know swanning off having a good time. They're, they're often involved in government work. They're often involved in, in corporate work. They're often involved in education, training. Or and, we're there to get married. Or we're there to get married. Or we're there to attend the weddings of their children. Yeah. Or to care for an elderly relative, yeah. all of the these things. So these are these are things that we want people to be able to do. And as you say, if the healthcare system is falling apart, if there are these massive outbreaks, then yeah, I can understand why Morrison's closed the border. Now, he shouldn't leave 8,000 Australians stranded there, but this will be a recurring reality for as long as we, A, don't have a vaccinated population, which is our domestic problem, which is also Morrison's failure, B, don't have proper quarantine facilities, which again is a Commonwealth failure, and C, don't support our neighbours to have the healthcare systems that they need in order to deal with local problems because local problems become international problems really quickly as the whole concept of coronavirus sort of illustrates to everybody absolutely it's you know it is really interesting because when i think of something like the 1918 epidemic Mm. you know that it was i think of it in terms of you know, it was a, it, affect, it afflicted all these Western populations. You know, it absolutely ran riot through mm. the United States. And the thing about it is that we lived in a, a less globalised world mm. then. Those days are over. There, there is no such thing as a contained outbreak anymore. Well, you know, unless you put in the social distancing, the lockdowns, like. Well, this know. is the reality, isn't it? Because there are ships off the coast of Australia right now, cargo ships that that have multiple people infected with COVID, and 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 you can't. Um, 
deal and trade in a global world uh, where COVID is infecting everybody, uh, and and it is a it is an issue. Like we we sometimes I think think that in Australia we can close our borders, we're an island nation, and we'll be safe. And to a degree, you know, we've we've had some benefit from that approach. There's no question. But, but we still got coronavirus. We still got coronavirus. Nine hundred Australians died. Like- we, st- we still we still have to um, deal with coronavirus outbreaks, as we saw in WA um, over the weekend. You know, we there's well, no. They keep point- finding it in the sewage system as well. Yeah, and know? and sure, you know, we are in a much better position than a lot of countries, um, thanks to the hard work a lot of state governments have put in. But we can't just allow a major nation like India to fall over. And this is before we even get into the geopolitics of India being a nuclear-armed state, Afghanistan uh, and India and the tensions between Pakistan and India and how Afghanistan comes into it and its border with China. Complicated part of the world. Incredibly complicated part of the world. You know, a complicated part of the world that in which a proactive public health intervention is probably very crucial. It's in all of our interests. Well, this is the thing. Like, this is what they were writing about in Haaretz, going, you know, Israel has a responsibility to India and, you know, these are fragile alliances that keep the peace in various directions and abandoning India now would be disastrous. It is the largest democracy in the world in terms of population uh, and it is and it is bordered um, by... Uh, China, which is not a democracy, not a democracy, like, really a not a democracy, large nuclear arsenal, a large standing army, and um, by Pakistan, which, as we know, has not the most stable political in, entity uh, in the world, but also has short-range nuclear weapons, and is is the people sometimes forget the full name is the Islamic Republic of Pakistan, um, which obviously in the geopolitical context in which it operates is a very fragile series of alliances with places like Iran and tensions with places like Iran. People forget that India is very close to Iran and the Middle East. This is not a country that is far away from the rest of the world. This is a country that is really in the centre. It's in the centre of the Indian Ocean, you know, and it, it borders on some really If you've major got your own ocean, areas. you're important. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So look, And ho- if, you, if you've got a nuclear arsenal, you probably should be treated seriously. Yeah, so look, hopefully... Um, <sighs> I think from what I'm reading, it looks as though the the peak of this outbreak in India is still some way off, which is obviously quite disturbing. Uh, and, uh, you know, I know that you, like Ivan, have many um, friends uh, both in India and from India um, through our through our studies and through our various um, various work that we've done. Um, and I just want to say to all of all of them, um, please stay safe. We hope your families are safe. Um, please do everything you can um, to to look after yourselves and your community. And and obviously, anything we can do, please don't hesitate to reach out because it is. It is something that impacts a lot of lot of people. There's a billion people in India and six billion people in the world, and I think when you've got a population of one-sixth of the world, um, you're probably going to know a lot of people in the rest of the population too. Yeah. Sorry about the disrespectful sounds from our dog. He's snuffling around today. I think he... I think 
I hate to say it, but maybe there's mice in the walls. Oh, no. Ben, oh, I no. tell everybody there are mice in the walls of our the country. shed. We live in the country. All right, I do want to touch on some other things as well. So today is International Workers' Memorial Day, um, which is obviously a very solemn day. Uh but it's important for us to recognise that 178 Australians were killed at work in the year 2020. And they're reported deaths at work. They are the reported deaths at work, that's right. And around the world, it's estimated around 170,000 plus people died at work. Uh, and in 2020, of course, COVID once again um, was... A, a new factor in deaths at work as we saw many healthcare workers and frontline workers retail assistants retail assistants contract covid and and perish. people who worked in meatworks it really impacted right across the spectrum. In Australia, of course, um, transport continues to be the most dangerous industry. Well, there's some argument that sex work is actually the most dangerous industry, but because... Um, not recorded. It's stigmatised, marginalised, not recorded. And I would just like to express my solidarity with sex workers in Australia, some of whom are obliged by other people's stigmas and problems into marginalised and dangerous circumstances. And I look forward to the day where everybody understands that sex work is work and occupational health and safety is a priority for that community as it is for every other working community. Absolutely. And I want to mention as well the work of the Transport Workers Union and the MUA uh, and others in the space who uh, have worked for decades to make transport work safer because it's not just truck drivers it's also the people they share the roads with uh, who are at risk uh, and often not recorded in the in the uh, workplace deaths um, so it is the safe rates campaign which some people might remember um, was about trying to make our roads safer and make transport work safer minimum safety standards for road transport imagine uh, it sounds it sounds so it's, simple when it's, you say it's it like so that. it's so weird to think that the liberals fought that so passionately and roped in a bunch of crossbenchers to support denying minimum safety standards yeah. for road transport is just one of it's one of the most appalling decisions that so, this government's made. And I think it's important on International Workers Memorial Day that we recognise that there is still work to be done, that despite how proud we are of Australia's occupational health and safety regime, there are whole industries like sex work where there's simply no recognition of the occupational health and safety issues. There, there are industries where the issues are known but are not addressed like in transport um, but there is also progress that is being made as a number of state jurisdictions particularly labour state jurisdictions bring about industrial manslaughter laws you and I both know families uh, in Ballarat for example, um, that have lost people in industrial accidents that were entirely preventable uh, and in those cases young men um, were taken away from their families and their community far too early. And it is often, um, it, well, it's always a tragedy. Everyone has the right to come home from work. That's right. You know, and I'd like to acknowledge the work that TWU do because they really are so <laughs> ferocious in their defence of their members and everybody in that industry and work so hard and campaign with 
like with ferocity for, for better safety standards to protect people. It's one of those things, isn't it? Because, you know, a lot of us will remember the campaigns against asbestos and the, and the change in community attitude and laws that followed the campaign around asbestos because, of course, it, it does kill people. Um, and... You know, now as a community, I think there's much greater awareness that asbestos is dangerous, it shouldn't be used unless there's no other alternative and, and it has to be used under particular conditions and circumstances. Um, but, of course, we know, now also know that um, silicosis as well. So, right. you know, if you're if you're having a kitchen bench installed um, and it's dry stone, um, somebody may well have... Um, contracted a preventable disease so you can have a nice stone bench to me that's a price that's not worth paying Um, and frankly the work of unions like the AMWU, the AWU and others in this space um, has highlighted that young men and women who work in these industries um, are at risk and now we're putting in place things to prevent them from contracting silicosis which is a lung disease which will over time um, kill them prematurely. But I also want to talk about some of the other um, safety issues that are relevant to working people uh, that have to do with people who are in what are traditionally white-collar professions. Mm -hmm. And I'm really proud of my own union, Mia, for being really proactive around the workplace safety issue Mm. of trolling and harassment, particularly gendered harassment, Mm. and the fact that Mia takes that so seriously and has been working really hard because, you know, psychological damage is still damage. And if you are harassed to the point where you cannot work, that is an OH&S issue. But it's really interesting for me coming from the theatre, which is, of course, my other career, (laughs) because why settle with one? That's Ah. right. So in the theatre in Australia, you know, we have really strict OHS rules that the dog is desperately trying to draw my, t- my attention away from. But, um, you know, that have been fought for by Mia for mm. years and years and years. You know, there are things that you can and can't do and that are there to protect not only actors but also technicians and other theatre staff. When you go to work in another country that doesn't have those kind yeah. of uh, protections, let me tell you, you really notice the difference. As I found out in a country that shall remain nameless when I was performing in a show where we were given 10 minutes to clear. We were at a festival and you got mm. 10 minutes to clear the set. And the set was like two chairs and a couple of guitars. And I was like, well, where did these go? And they were like, oh, in the storage room, which is five stories beneath us. And I was like, what? And literally I had to carry a wheelie chair in my costume down five stories worth of metal stairs in the rain with no cage protection. And all I had was a handrail. And it was literally the longest walk of my life was down those sets of stairs just going, I could die at any moment for being in a musical. And... That's Doesn't when seem you, worth the sacrifice. Does and it? it's that when you've had those experiences, you become the OHS like nutcase at work going, yeah. Yep, we need this, we need this, we need this, we're not doing this, this is not safe, this has to be done. These are all the things that we have to go through. And of course with the pandemic, it's it's worth remembering that Look at my traumatised little Yeah, fight. well, we need to be really conscious of workplace safety. And and with the way work has changed over the last 10 or 15 years as well, you know, with more in-home care, with gig jo- with with people doing gigs and coming to your door, there's there's a whole range of things that we all need to be much more conscious there of. There are a lot of grey areas now. There are a lot of grey areas. And it's part of the reason why secure employment is so important. Of right? course. Because even today I saw the nurses in Queensland 
Queensland, the Nurses Union in Queensland, um, and shout out to them because they do they do a great job up there. They've gone to the State Industrial Relations Commission because the protective equipment that they're being issued in hospitals doesn't fit. It's not appropriate. It's not protecting them from COVID, you know. And because those workers... So it's less of PPE and more of a costume that looks like PPE. Yeah, but yeah. because those workers are in relatively secure employment, because they are unionised, they're able to take these issues forward. They're able to not be afraid. And I know if you're in insecure employment, if you're a casual, if you're a gig worker, it can be really intimidating to think that you might have to give up all of your income to raise that issue about the fact that the steps are always wet or, you know, that people answer the door and they're never wearing a mask and they're sick and they're coughing. Like, it, it, it can be... Or they have a dog that attacks you. Or they have a dog that attacks you, you know. And I know, shout out to the, to the communication workers and the CPSU as well because postal workers have had this issue from time immemorial, right? But they've they've unionised around that and there are protections for those workers and compensation if they're injured at work, which is, unfortunately, as we know with the gig economy, people are dying on our roads delivering food. Like, I just can't. I mean, I always struggle with that one. The idea that you would ever be prepared to put someone's life at risk to have pad tie delivered to your door for a dollar, um, just, it strikes me as a really un-Australian thing to, to do. Yeah. You know, you know loving pad tie as Australian, letting workers die to supply it is not. Yeah. But I, I just want to promote something to everybody. Ben and I have been watching what is definitely our favourite new TV show, which is an American show called Superstore. We might have mentioned it on this program mm. before. And it's about retail workers in America and it's a sitcom and it's very funny and it's very dark. Um, but it's a really, really great television narrative about the workplace and deals with a lot of these issues as you see these like minimum wage workers in America who, you know, are funny and have complex lives and the rest of it, but who are all at the mercy of a deregulated work environment. And it's such a powerful show because it is very funny and it is, you know, very well written and very human Mm. and the performances are great, but there's a real seriousness to it about you know what the costs are when, of when people get sick and they don't have sick leave when yeah. they when they have babies and they don't have parental leave you know when they have, have sick children and they can't care for them and all the the unnecessary complications on mm. the lives of working people where there's a corporate class who are absolutely immune to caring about Paid them. 20, 30 times as much as the workers they supervise. Yeah. 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 So, look, International Workers Memorial Day, um, again, just uh, our condolences to anyone who has lost a, a loved one or a relative or a friend or a co-worker over the last 12 months in the workplace. Uh, and also a big shout out to everybody uh, who's working hard to make sure that every worker goes home safe at the end of their shift, whatever their employment, whatever their work. Hey Ben, I love unions. So do I. I think they're great. I think they're awesome. And, you know, think about it. I'm a member of three. 178 people died in Australia last year out of 175,000 around the world, you know. Um, and, and it should be zero. Don't get me wrong, it should be zero. But we're doing... We're doing pretty well by international standards. We can do better, but we're doing pretty well because we've got 
strong unions full of people who care about each other and care about their workplace. You know, I used to work for the CFMEU, as you know, Mm. and I had a job where I uh, wrote up histories of old retired mine workers talking about their experiences in the mines, and it was life-changing. And it it literally turned me into what I am, which is, you know, a pro-union labour socialist. And... There was a guy who was speaking about his experiences working in mining in South Africa, and he was working there in like the 70s or 80s. And he said they used to take seven body bags down a shift, and they'd usually run out of bags. And it was the darkest thing I had ever heard. Yeah, that's grim. That is grim. Well, hopefully, uh, this time next year, we can report uh, good news, and those numbers will be down. Um, And remember, support your union and support the political parties that want to um, bring in industrial manslaughter because it's when penalties are real that employers actually pay attention. And on this, just one more thing. So Ben and I, because we are union people, get a lot of phone calls from friends who find themselves the victim of accidents at at work. A friend of mine sustained a particularly heavy head injury that has affected him ever since at his retail retail job. And again and again, we ask, are you a member of the union? And the thing is that when the answer is no, it's, you you know, you want to be a member of the union to head off those problems. That's right. You don't want to be the person with a head injury who's going up against a corporation on your own trying to get some kind of support to recover from what's happened to you. You want to invest in the prevention of the industry and have the insurance of the union having your back just in case anything goes wrong. And fundamentally, that's what it is, right? Like, you know, there's lots of really good ideological reasons, lots of good policy reasons, lots of immediate benefit reasons to be a member of the union. But it's also about contributing to a pool of resources that are available for the members who need them when they need them. So if you're not a member, to turn around and you haven't been a member, to then turn around and go, well, I need access to that pool of resources now, um, even though I haven't been contributing to it, um, but I know other people who haven't been using it, have been contributing, is is a bit rough. And you'd find, like most organisations, the RACV isn't going to give you full support if you haven't been a member just because you need it then and there. They normally make you pay a couple of years' fees up front. Being a member of the union, yes, it's about you getting support when you need it, but it's about contributing to the pool of resources so that whenever a member needs help, whoever they might be, the member gets the help. And if you think, at some point, I might need that, at some point, I'm going to want to be able to access that, you got to contribute. We all got to. We all got to chip in. That's the, how these things work. The Teamwork people, makes the dream work. Yeah, the people who think it will never happen to them inevitably yeah. happens to them. It, it's like the discussion when you're an international student, which I was. They give you a lecture about at the University of Wollongong. They used to tell us the story about the two guys from our university who went on exchange in Canada and went camping and were attacked by bears and killed. <laughs> yeah, right. And oh, and killed. Jeez, yeah, yeah, it was really dark. And oh. one of them was insured, and the other one wasn't. And his family had to sell their house to pay for the repatriation of his remains. Yeah, see, like, I know I know, nobody likes to pay insurance. I know everybody thinks it's not going to happen to them. But, folks, you know, for something that is tax deductible, that is there when you absolutely need it, when you're at your absolute weakest and have your least access to resources usually. Having a head injury in the stock room. Is, union membership is one of the best 
investments you can make in yourself. And that's before you get into all the other things about professional development and better wages and all the rest of it. Just, you know, do that. There you go. That's our little, that's our ad for the Australian Union movement. Go to australianunions.org.au and follow the links there. They can sign you up right now. All right, let's move on because Tasmania is going to the polls, Van. Yeah, why am I not more excited? I think, I think... Is it because it's sort of it locked itself away and it sort of ceased to exist to the rest of us for a few months? Or? Well, like it's been over a year. Like, and Tas- I love Tasmania. Yeah, but Tasmania moved really quickly, I think, with lockdowns and, and cutting itself off. And, uh, of course, Tasmanian politics... Uh, has the Liberals have been in charge there for a while now, uh, and seemingly it's an uphill struggle, I think, for Labor to win this one, um, and that's part of the reason why the election's now, right? Like, it's not due for another 12 months. But they brought it forward because they knew the Liberals knew they had the advantage and they w- yeah. received a degree of popularity from locking down borders and keeping the virus limited. So Peter, Peter Gutwin, who's the Premier there, had a very narrow majority in the House or in the in the parliament, and it's a tiny parliament as well. Like yeah. it's only it's like a few of them, twelve or fifteen people. It's you got to, people got to remember Tasmania has a very small population. Actually, like it's not, um, you know, it's not got the same population as WA or South Australia. It's it's a very small population, and they're quite spread out. In many ways, it's We've also got the very north and the south. Yeah, and there's a big division between yeah. the north and the south, which is funny because you can drive between them in a couple of hours. Well, but not very well because there's not many good roads. There That's aren't many part good of roads. The issue. Well, I mean, this is the thing with Tasmania, isn't it? Like, you know, it, there are problems with job opportunity in Tasmania. Mm. There's an ongoing conflict between primary resources and environmental protection and the new industries of tourism and arts and culture. Um, there are, I mean, let's talk through some of the issues Tasmania mm. has. Like, it has an issue around healthcare, which is Massive really issue. serious. It has some of the worst uh, ambulance ramping in the country, and that's, that's basically where the ambulance comes to get you, picks you up, because they don't want to blow out their response times, but then sits on the ramp at the hospital, so you can't actually get into the hospital, even though you're in the ambulance. That's a pretty major issue. Uh, we've seen photos now of wards that have been closed in hospitals, so rather than closing the hospital or consolidating a hospital, um, the, the Liberal government appears to be shutting down wards within hospitals and taking out all of the equipment and getting rid of the staff so that they can pretend like the hospital hasn't been closed, but sections of it have been. Um, you're seeing huge wait times for surgery. Obviously, COVID plays a role and elective surgeries have been um, delayed in a lot of places, but Tasmania's had very little COVID exposure. Um, and you're still seeing these really long wait times. It, it, the health system in Tassie is a real shambles, would be my my view. Well, this was always Andrew Wilkie's pitch. Like, Andrew Wilkie's an independent federal member from down in Tasmania and was, of course, one of the, the votes that made Julia Gillard Prime Minister of Australia instead of Tony Abbott when the the independents, the, the crossbench, hung yep. the hung parliament, chose to support her. And his whole thing was, I want hospital improvement, I want you know, an increase in funding for healthcare and that's why I represent this area and that's what I'm about. But there are some really serious structural and problems pe- there. People might even remember, if you're as, as old as I am, um, you might remember this, fan that the Howard government actually <laughs> nationalised a hospital in, um, in Tasmania because the state 
the state was going to shut it down. It didn't have the resources to run it. And it caused a political problem for the Howard government um, in the north, I think it was. They didn't want to lose one of the federal seats. Uh, and they nationalised it. And the, and the Commonwealth Health Department actually ran a hospital for the first and I think only time in the history of the Commonwealth. Uh, and it was in Tasmania because the Tasmanian health system couldn't couldn't do it uh, uh, and it's look I think this election is going to be um, tight it's it's likely to be a hung parliament from what I've seen well I mean this is the thing that it, they have a different electoral yeah, system in different system. Tasmania people forget they have a system called Hare Clark and Hare Clark is a system where your electorate elects a number of representatives. Mm. So rather than having a um, just proportional representation where all of Tasmania allocate like votes in a in on mass and seats are apportioned by however whatever your percentage is, mm. they don't have that. But also they don't have single member constituencies, which is what we have in Victoria, obviously, mm. where you know if most of Australia has that. Yeah, most of Australia has that, but. Tasmania doesn't. So I think they elect five people per mm. electorate and that means that a minor party, which is the Greens, uh, gets seats in parliament. Mm. The problem is, of course, that you have three very different political parties of different mm. ideology in terms of the Greens and Labor and the Liberal Party down there. They don't have the National Party down there. No. Um, oh, not really. Not really. I mean, yeah. there are people who... I think would... there's a couple of people who claim to be, but I don't think they've elected a National par- no, Party person. No, not, in not really. Time. They sort of claim to be National. But you've also got your Jackie Lambie people and yep. Wilkie and, you know, an independent sort of... Bit of an independent well. streak, There's yeah. an independent streak in Tasmania. But, I mean, one of the issues in Tasmania is when Labor were last in government, they were in coalition with the Greens and the Greens got a ministry and made some decisions that Labor people really did not like, like closing public schools and bussing in scabs to break a prison officer's strike. They're not Labor values. And Labor was like, we can't work with these people. We're never going to do this again, which means that in a system where the pie is divided between the three parties, that creates a huge problem. And and look, this time, some of the, you know, obviously we've talked about the health issue. Uh, We've talked a little bit about the infrastructure issue, which is um, a growing issue there. They don't really have much in the way of public transport, no, frankly. No, they don't. They um, don't have commuter trains. No, they don't have any of that. You know, part of it is like a population density. Uh, but you've also uh, you've also got the issue of privatisation, which is a big issue. Well, the liberals are talking about privatising TAFE. Privatising TAFE, which is outrageous because, I mean, there are, there are structural problems with jobs in Tasmania. Yeah. And this is the other thing that... You know, Tasmania is so beautiful. Like, you know this. I mm-hmm. Before coronavirus, I would run down there every couple of months. I've got a lot of friends down there. I do a lot of work with companies down there, and I love it. Yeah. And it is just it, – it's incredibly beautiful. And, you know, there, there was a really great quarterly essay a few years ago that talked about Lake Pedder and, and the fact that if you saw the Tasmanian wilderness, you just became an environmentalist. Mm-hmm. Like, if you looked and saw it, you just went, how could anybody harm this? And I'm on board. Like, I am that person. I've Mm. had those experiences. But 
managing that needs to come with an alternative industry plan and jobs that aren't about cutting down trees and the way that we can transition people from the old industries to the new industries, it's a complex question. One of the things that happened in Tasmania when they um, protected the forest there and had these landmark Mm. forestry agreements, all of which, by the way, I support completely Mm. because I am an environmentalist, was that the, the transition, in inverted commas, for timber workers was into the hospitality industry, which mm. didn't work. Like, if you've been chopping down trees all of your life and working in, you know, manual labour, that doesn't necessarily qualify you to welcome people to a restaurant or run a and b Like, they're yeah. different skills. And what we know about hospitality in particular, which was what was going to be the great recovery of Tasmania, mm. oh, we're going to have all these tourism jobs, it's going to be eco-tourism. So they paid, they maxed out at about 40% of what you used to get as a timber worker. Yeah. And it also meant that, you know, the way that various social politics in Australia works is that women got jobs and men became long-term unemployed. You had yeah. some really, like, passionate resentments in communities about how that happened. Mm. And, you know, Tasmania is a really good place to go, well, this is where we should spend this is where we should spend government money on mm. sustainability and this is where we should spend government money on you know, infrastructure building and creating good jobs for people that aren't in destroying forests and aren't in, you know, like polluting communities, you know. Well, this is the thing, isn't it? You would think that somewhere like Tasmania is a really good opportunity to build world-class health infrastructure, world-class education education structures um, to to really invest in those things so that people are drawn to the state, that there's investment in innovation, that there is opportunities for people. You know, like I would have thought that you would want people going to Tasmania to get their quals, whether it's a certificate for an apprenticeship, whatever it might be. Because then you're bringing people into the economy. That's right. And, and, then, and then if they go back to the mainland, they go back to the mainland. But of course, um, we've seen over a long period of time, young people, although apparently less young people have left Tasmania recently, COVID might have something to do with that. But um, leaving, and Mona might have something to do yeah, with that as well. Leaving, leaving Tasmania, partly because there's no housing, because the uh, the uh, hospitality sector has been deregulated through Airbnb. And well, this is the thing, you know, they were having terrible, terrible problems in Tasmania, where it gets, by the way, very cold. Very cold. It gets polar temperatures there. Sorry, I just hit the microphone. Um, and But you had this shocking homelessness problem in mm. Tasmania because what used to be rental stock, is now more valuable as Airbnb. So people going down for Mona weekends who would, you know, spend more on an Airbnb in the weekend than a local Tasmanian would used to pay for a rental property. And it's put an enormous squeeze on housing availability down there. There were people who were, like, living at the showgrounds. Yeah. And, you know, that's... It sounds to me like what they need is a good, strong Labor government led by Rebecca White. Yeah, it sounds like they do need a very strong Labor government that's about, you know, transition industries and creating job opportunities and regulating, 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 regulating. Because do you know what's really great about regulation? I think of regulation, people say red tape, and I think of tape as something that holds something together. That's That's what you use tape for. And if you take the tape off something, it it falls falls apart. Yes. So, look, uh, if you haven't already voted in the Tasmanian election and you're eligible to do so, uh, the uh, the election is, I believe, this weekend. Uh, so do make sure that you cast your ballot. Uh, and it does seem like it's time for a good 
red government down in Tasmania. It's always time for good red government. Now, Van, let's have some good news. Hit us up with the good news, please. It's about jaguars. Jaguars. What's going on with jaguars? Well, um, jaguars are beautiful indigenous cats of Central America. Mm -hmm. They have, um, in South America, they have a really important role in... um, you know, in the spiritual traditions, various indigenous people from that part of the world. And of course, they're endangered and facing habitat loss and yada, yada, yada. Anyway, in the country of Belize, which is a teeny weeny little country um, in Central America, what they have done is they've they cost they did what a lot of places are doing to make the argument about environmental preservation and costed um uh, vast tracts of rainforest that they had mm-hmm. and formed a partnership of business groups, uh, government, non-government organisations, um, regional communities like everyone, every stakeholder, and went, here is 230,000 acres of pristine rainforest. Mm-hmm. There are 100 species of trees here. There are 400 species of birds. There are jaguars and pumas and tapirs and animals that I'd never even heard of. Um, charismatic uh, charismatic megafauna, I think they call them. Charismatic megafauna. Charismatic me- I think that's the term. Wow. That's a bit, yeah. That's a hell of a category. Yeah, my charismatic megafauna, baby. Oh. Anyway, they went, do you know this is actually worth trillions of dollars? Mm. and costed it and when the cost of losing this is in the trillions Mm. so let's look at what it would require as an investment to run this as protected habitat so they've just protected 230,000 acres it's 9% of the total land mass of Belize wow Um, it's connecting up a corridor and it's and it's like this wilderness has been there but it's now there forever and everybody has a financial stake in maintaining it yeah fantastic so yeah so the the jaguars of that particular corridor will be protected. Long live the jaguars of Belize. Yeah, and it's just like everyone really should be doing that. You and I get very emotional about trees getting cut down. Yes, as, yes. Uh, uh, anyway, we won't get As into our neighbours all know, and uh, certainly putting a value on trees, plants, animals, mm. the future of humanity. If that's what it takes, if we are going to persist with this capitalism nonsense, which we all know I personally cannot bear and think is very inefficient, um, that... Let's put the true cost. Let's the put true the true cost. Let's price some externalities. Yeah. Like if we take down 230,000 acres worth of trees, what's the actual financial cost of that? Mm. And um, and they did that in Belize and now that land is protected and I have a feeling they might be protecting a bit more. Fantastic. Well... That, I think, is a really good note to end on, and that is the week on Wednesday for this week on the 28th of April 2021. Van, thank you so much again for today. Uh, Some really big, juicy topics in there. We've gone through a lot. We've gone from one side of the world to the other side of the world. We've gone to Tasmania. We've looked at WA. We've really explored everything. And we didn't even talk about how great it is that George Christensen is leaving the federal parliament. Which is wonderful. He always said he wanted to make a contribution to making Australian society better, and he's just done it. (laughs) Finally. Um, So please remember, do share uh, The Week on Wednesday on Apple, on Google, Send us a message. Tell us what you'd like us to talk about. Yeah. uh, We really appreciate everyone's engagement. It's been really good to see the audience growing. And I'd love some positive environmental stories from this country. Yeah, would please. be great. So if you're involved in something awesome that's happening um, and trying to get support behind that, like, let us know. Because the, uh, the way I dealt with my environmental existential fear was to find out about 
the good in the world. And I, my favourite section of the show is always talking about good environmental stories. So if you have some to share, like, let us know. Well, that concludes this week's episode of The Week on Wednesday. Join us on Sunday for The Weekend Wrap, where we will rapidly cover the big stories between now and then. But love you very much, Fanny. I love you too, and I'm really glad the dog has settled down. <laughs> Bye. Bye.